restaurants and chefs and, and cuisine in general evolves, but bakeries, people kind of want their bakery to be the same, especially if you're a corner bakery. They want you know, the, the cookie to be the same, the croissant to be the same, the morning bun, the muffin, the coffee, and I feel like we've maintained you know, our core sort of you know, offerings, but we've evolved. I think we're doing our best work now. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have quite the lineup. Three people, three interviews. We have Chad Robertson, the co-owner of Tartine Bakery and Manufactory in San Francisco. And now Los Angeles. He gave me a tour of his massive manufacturing in, in downtown, and we, after the tour, he showed me some ovens. He showed me these massive mixers. We went to their conference room, and we talk about Tartine, uh, especially the move to South Korea. That was really interesting. And just his, some of these early day stories of baking bread in his backyard. Love Chad Robertson. What a cool interview. Also on this episode, Ed Levine, the founder of Serious Eats. I have probably been reading Serious Eats since college. Oh, I've been reading at least a decade. Serious Eats uh, is influential in the media industry. Uh, we at Taste have uh, been the home to several former Serious Eats writers and editors. Uh, and we talk about the growth and the rise of Serious Eats uh, and his new memoir, Serious Eater, which tells these juicy stories behind it. Uh, his eventual selling of the business, which was a long, drawn-out process. Ed Levine got some stories. We go over a few of them. Also, bonus round on this episode, an interview with Donna Leonard, the owner of Il Buco. Up first, here's Matt talking to Chad Robertson. Chad Robertson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Really a pleasure to be here. So happy to be in Los Angeles at your new, what do you call it, a complex? Do you call it a, like a lab? Boy, that's a good question. We were kind of calling it a campus, but yeah, um, yeah it's the manufacturing. Um, tell me first off, what drew you to Los Angeles? I think uh, we're downtown at the Row. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, we're a block away from the largest vegetable market in America. That's pretty cool. What drew you to Los Angeles in this location? You know, I've, I've, um, I grew up in Texas. I've been in San Francisco since the mid-90s. So I've, I've been in California f- for quite a while. I, haven't, I hadn't spent a lot of time in L.A., not for any reason, just because I, I wasn't really coming to L.A. I was going to New York when I was leaving San Francisco. And um, really, it was when we started to entertain the idea of working with Blue Bottle. I started to come down to L.A. and, and really see, you know, I, I always knew L.A. was a big, amazing Diverse city, uh, diverse in, in every way, um, art, culture, people, food, everything. Um, but then I, I really started to, once we stopped the thing with Blue Bottle, I still sort of had this, uh, my tooth set for coming down to L.A. You just knew the city spoke to you and the community here spoke well, to it's you. It's super inspiring, you know, again, so many aspects of L.A. Are, are very, very inspiring. It's a much larger city than San Francisco. When I go to San Francisco now, I feel like I'm kind of going back to my small, small town and, you know, you kind of rest up and then you come back to L.A. and there's just stuff going on, you know, everywhere. I wanted to talk to you about like creative process a little bit because I think this place is full of ideas. It's just bursting with ideas, be it your bread program, your coffee roasting, pastry. Um, tell me, what is a recent kind of discovery that you had on this campus yourself personally? Boy, um, 
I mean, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint like one thing because there's there's so many going on, so much going on. There's so many teams here. Um, I mean, you know, it's stuff. It's like rediscovering a lot of things, stuff that we've done in the past, but I haven't done in a while. Like our fermentation chef here is is starting to make you know all these different kombuchas for cocktails and non-alcoholic drinks as well. Like um, you know, turmeric and and celery and you know all that stuff. Um, we're uh, we're playing around with um, different grains. Our, mm. our all of our all of our flowers milled fresh every ten days up in Washington State and shipped to us in super sacks. Um, and so, yeah, just working with lots of different grains and then building these menus. Um, we have a daytime, we have an all day menu. We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have a market menu. We're about to open a dinner only restaurant in two mm-hmm. weeks. So. It's it's hard for me to pinpoint. One Are you thing. tasting um, fermentation? Are you tasting from Chris Bianco his new restaurant all the time? How do you... Everything. Yeah, we yeah. had we had a tasting last week. We have another tasting on Wednesday. Um, yeah, any tasting, we're all we're all hands on deck. Yeah, it must be such an exciting moment for you to have Chris Bianco opening a restaurant with you, but also having this coffee roasting program here and all these like all these facets that are opening basically at the same time. It seems like you're just, they're all opening at once. Yeah, it's definitely, um, exciting might not be the right word. (laughs) It's overwhelming. It's crazy for sure. I I would say, um, without this, this specific team we have, it wouldn't be possible. Everyone's sort of stretched to their limit, but, but we're all still standing. And yeah, as far as Chris Bianco goes, he's, he's one of my best friends. I've known him for 25 years. And initially, yeah, the idea was for us to do our thing and then invite Chris to have a restaurant. And, you know, he started coming and checking it out. And, you know, we had some late night sessions, uh, eating, drinking and talking about this. And, and Bianco's like, brother, why, you know, can I just be a part of all of it? Like, you know, and I'm like, of course. That's, I mean, that's the best, you know, because Chris has ideas on coffee, he has ideas on bread, he has ideas on everything. And they're all, you know, just gems, always. Yeah, and, and you've been friends with him since he opened in Phoenix, basically? Uh, I think a little bit after that, but, you know, he visited me. I met him because I was baking in a backyard in north of San Francisco in Marshall, California, on Tomales Bay at Alan Scott's house. I was living there and baking in the backyard and selling bread, you know, illegal bread, to Bolinas, to the People's Store, and they didn't care about certification or anything, so that worked out. And Chris was also illegally selling mozzarella around where he was. So we sort of both started out selling illicit, you know, (laughs) handmade food. Yeah. Um, But he was visiting so he could see this wood fired oven because the Alan Scott, the the gentleman whose house we lived in is Tasmanian um, blacksmith adventure. He did all kinds of amazing things in his lifetime, but he was, he became very renowned for building these beautiful wood fired ovens in Northern California. And then, then, you know, he published plans and his ovens are all over the world um, now, but that Chris was coming to visit and see that oven. And I was the guy that was in the backyard baking. Tell me, take me back to that moment when you were baking in the backyard and just like, what was your day to day? Like, what were, like, were you waking up early to bake the bread? Like, yeah, schedule. Yeah. Alan had a, an Osti roller, you know, stone mill back then. A lot of people use them now. They're, they're great. I was waking up, I was tempering the whole grain, mm-hmm. kamut, and, you know, all that stuff back, back then. That was like 1995, 94, 95. Yeah. And I was tempering the grain, you know, totally by hand, just sprinkling water in two days before and turning it and then milling, milling the grain fresh and 
and then mixing. Yeah, I would get up at like three or four and fire the oven and then try to get the bread to the stores by, you know, mid morning or something like that. How much were you doing? What was your quantity per day? I mean, it was as much as I could fit in the, in the kitchen in the oven. It was probably like 60 loaves. It wasn't oh much. Gosh. It was kind of how everyone starts out, you yeah. know, 50, 60 loaves. And then by the time we, I mean, Alan gave us our first seed money to build the, the original bakery and point race station on the corner there. And the whole, you know, artist community built the oven for us. We built it with no permit and we got slapped with a fine of like a hundred dollars. So it all worked out. Tell me, Speaking of getting started, it seems like we're having a moment now with bread baking. Um, I mean, there's always been moments with your books and with your journalism and with your restaurants. People have always talked to you about baking bread. That said, it seems like there's a meme almost with bread baking. A lot of um, actually men, it seems like, are baking more than ever. I mean, are, do you feel this at all? Are you getting hit up on your social media channels about your I, bread recipes? Yeah, I mean, for sure more people are making bread. I mean, I could just say anecdotally like when we opened the bakery in san francisco for the first 10 years no one else really opened a bakery and then now people are baking all over and people are opening all day and you know it's a model that i think people see that it's worked for us but also it's kind of a model that is you kind of have to be working and selling stuff all day to pay the rent pay even something approaching a living wage now so it's it's just it's kind of the industry's changing and more and more you know People are baking bread in-house and, and baked goods and then, you know, lunch and dinner. What about for the home cook, too? Because I think there's a, there's a level of the home cook as well who is baking bread more and more. Home cooks, for sure. And on the, on the like, gender thing, for sure, guys, uh, guys are baking a lot of bread. But I, I would say that that became a little bit of a thing because we're based originally in the Bay Area. And there was, there was definitely a, a, a group of like Silicon Valley, you know, tech people that got really into it and, and a couple of stories were written. But in my personal experience, you know, all over the world and just in Tartine, we have more women than men on our bread team too. And, um, and then the other funny thing that I've noticed and, and, you know, I don't know if this is true across the board, obviously it's not, but guys tend to sort of uh, get more sort of hung up on really specific things it might not be too significant like what if it's one degree or two degrees colder or warmer and and i feel like women bakers just kind of go for it you know and i i found that difference like women are a little more just kind of dive in and make bread and um but yeah i mean we have you know our biggest competition in korea is like Koreans making bread from our books, like, and doing it really, really well. And then putting on, like, cacao chat and, like, sharing the photos. All that stuff. It go, Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty cool. Have you read Sourdough by Robin Sloan, a novel that's set in this, like, near future, and there's, like, some... I No, I've heard about this. A lot of people have told me I should read it. I, I definitely should, but I get so much bread talk in my daily life that my wife's like, don't talk to me about bread ever. I mean, she, she said that to me like 15 years ago. <laughs> no, you need balance as part of life. I recommend reading it. It might be too close to home a little bit, but it's, 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 it's definitely a riot at points. And I think it's a great biting satire. Yeah, yeah, no, I will. Which is, I mean, it makes people grow, right? Satire is part of our world. It, 100%. Tell me a little bit about... The idea of locality and community, you, you're a community builder. We just talked about how you started baking in a small backyard um, kitchen. But, of course, um, you have bigger ambitions. You, you've, you're in Seoul. You're in Northern California. You're in Los Angeles. You're, you've got other expansions. How do you balance the two, keeping things super local, but also, quote-unquote, scaling your business to a larger 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's a very easy answer for me because um, we do both at the same time. I mean, this is a question I get, what you just asked, and then also how, do you, how are you going to... How are you going to stay artisanal when you're growing so big? And I'm like, well, it's easy. We're just going to do both. And also, I would say, you know, I, I grew up in Texas, but I moved all over all the time. And, you know, for me, I don't really have, like, a home in my mind. Um, some of my best friends when I was a kid were exchange students because I just kept moving and going to different schools. And, you know, when I go to Korea, when I go to Seoul, I'm, like, I'm going to my Seoul family, and I'm embracing that culture. And... When I'm in California, when I'm in San Francisco, it's, it's the same thing. In L.A., I, I fully feel at home here. And wherever I go, I make friends, and I try to find the community, and I try to add to whatever's already there. You know, like that's, to me, it's, it's about building relationships and building community wherever you are and trying to, trying to build um, a support infrastructure where everyone's kind of, you know, helping each other. How do you do that in Seoul, like 12 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours away time zone? How do you... Stay connected with the community there. Is it just staffing and having the right people there? Yeah, I mean, we've we sent some of our team over a couple of in the beginning. Someone was there. One of our head pastry people was there for six months, and also one of the bread our bread team was there for a year. The Korean oh, wow, team a year. Yeah, That's the amazing. Korean team also comes here. They're all coming, I think, next week. And you know, a big part, and it costs money, and it's a it's a commitment, um, time and and resources, but. For us, you know, when I told my partners, you know, yeah, I'm ready to expand, but this is the way I want to do it. I want to make sure that it's a full-on exchange of people and relationships and ideas. Like, it's, you know, it's a business where we'll make some money at some point, I hope. But really, for me, this part's about much more about learning, you know, from different cultures and, and bringing inspiration. Uh, like, I'm really excited about bringing some of our tartine-style Korean pastries to, to L.A. because the largest, we have the largest Korean population outside of Seoul here it's, in Los Angeles. I mean, what's the difference in terms of pastry style? I know it's probably less sweet than American palate. Some of it's, a lot of it's less sweet. Some of it's more sweet. The Korean pastries are kind of interesting. It's sort of a mashup of, like, Western and Eastern. And, you know, there's, like, cream buns. The, the most popular bread is... is same in Japan, like and same in China, is, is like a very soft white sort of pandemic. And, you know, we're, we're trying to incorporate more whole grain, more fresh milled, even some koji, you know, some interesting stuff, but, to, but maintaining all the qualities that, that people like about it, which is soft, you know, squishy, uh, easy to it's you know, slice. A, it's and, such a separate end of the spectrum is your sourdoughs and some of your crust. Yeah, but I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm just saying like, what's important for, for me sure. with bread is like, of course, with the, with the country bread, I want to, I want an extreme crust and crumb sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, difference between the two. But, but then if people want really soft, you know, delicious bread, like how can I, how can I make that and be proud of it? So we'll, we'll put a lot of pre-cooked whole grain in, so it keeps it super moist. We'll put some, you know, pre-fermented stuff in it. And, yeah, we'll still try to keep, we'll st- try to keep all the qualities that people love about it. Where do you um, grow grains in East Asia? We're, well, currently, a few years ago, I was, we, we were going into Japan first, and then the whole Blue Bottle thing happened. They were in Japan, and everything got a little bit mixed up with what Tartine was going to do there. So we're, we're back looking at Japan but I visited farmers in Hokkaido that were growing some beautiful, beautiful wheat. The Japanese have already kind of selected wheat to have these qualities that they like, which is what I'm always going for, which is, you know, it's super moist, kind of mochi mochi texture. And so 
we are, I mean, we're sort of in this process right now of working with our Korean partners and just that whole region and seeing where we can partner with farmers and, and start growing some of that grain. It took us about six, seven years to get the grain system that we have here on the West Coast set up. So six years ago, six and a half years ago, I was visited uh, the bread lab at Washington State University. I wanted University. to hear more about that, the bread lab. It's, it's, you really work closely with a, a, an edu- like a, a institution, right? Like a, like a- yeah, they're, they're breeders, um, and they have an amazing grain breeding program there, and it's, you know, it's also traditional plant breeding. Um, for sele- and the, the big difference is that now we're selecting for flavor and nutrition, and there's a lot more if you're a breeder. They're, they're trying to breed to sort of outrun the disease cycle, which... If you don't know about it, it's really crazy. Like diseases are always mutating and trying to destroy all the stuff that they're growing, and so they have to continually stay ahead of the curve. But we started tasting grains, yeah, six and a half years ago, and the big question was when when can I use these at Tartine? And it took it took six years to be able to grow these out, and and in that time they built a mill up there, which is Karen Springs Mill, and they're just amazing partners, Kevin Morris and his team. And they basically put together a mill in a way that really hasn't been done before. It's, it's a combination of modern technology and old technology. So it's, it's roller mill and stone mill, and it, it's on the same line. And again, they sort of put it together, and you, know, you could say put it together the wrong way on purpose to kind of see what they would get. And what they end up getting is a much higher extraction flour that's got the fine granulations, so it sort of gives you the baking qualities of white flour, but it gives you the flavor and nutrition of whole grain. This was like a really innovative breakthrough in terms of the genetics of these of these. The plants. genetics, yes, and then also the milling. So the milling is part of it. It's yeah. I mean, there's fresh milling. There's but then there's the way that these mills have the way that these mills are are the way the the grain is being ground through them is just. Like our white flour now is, is type 85 about. So if whole grain is 100%, white flour is typically 55% of the grain. We're, our, quote, lightest flour is somewhere between 80 and 85. We use a lot of 100% also. But, you know, for me, I, I, like the, I like the qualities of white bread. I just don't like, you know, the flavor. It's bland, and you can only go so far, and also it's just not. There's it's a nutrition not, to it. No, it does, it, there's no fiber. And, yeah. you know, trust me, I went on a, on a pizza tour with, with my good friend Christian Puglisi before he opened, based his restaurant, yeah, his yeah, Italian yeah. restaurant in Copenhagen. And we ate pizza for a week, and <laughs> your digestion stops yeah, completely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not good for tracks. you. It's not good for you. <laughs> like, any, like, you can have, like, 16 green smoothies, in it, and it will not help you no. after a pizza crawl. I've been there. I'm a food writer, so there you go. Yeah, so, I mean, so the pizza we make here has a ton of whole grain in it, but... We haven't really advertised that yet because we want people to just like it for what it is, and then and then we'll spring it on them later. Well, isn't it kind of uh, there's like been a little bit of like chatter about it's not pizza, it's a flatbread here. Well, that I mean, you have to look at Dave Chang's Instagram feed where Chris Bianco has like five or six short videos where he's oh, I need to that out. he's he describes why, and it 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 kind of makes sense once you watch all those, but it it's mainly because. Well, Bianco is going to do a pizzeria Bianco at some point, like, you know, what he calls kind of his museum pizzeria, which is just <laughs> a copy of the original yeah, one. Yeah. But this was, this was meant to be a collaboration. And, and Chris is, you know, he's, he's traditional, but he's also super innovative and open-minded about everything. So he's, he's like, Chad, you guys mix this dough every day for, you know, 25 years. Why, why don't we just treat it a little differently? So we're using one of our bread doughs, one that has a lot of um, whole grain, a lot of pre-cooked grain in it. And then 
we're basically, you know, shaping it like on a couche, like you would bread and putting that at the pizza station. And then when, when it's time to cook the pizza, you flip it out, you top it, you, you bake it. So it, it literally is flat bread. But as Bianco says in, that, in one of those videos, he's like, it's not everybody's pizza, but it is everybody's flat bread. <laughs> so. That's good. I'm glad you have a sense of humor about it. And there's like a mission behind it, but you're not getting hung up on these semantics. We're totally not hung up, but we just need to make sure other people, we, we didn't want to give anyone any room to get hung up on it because there's no reason to. There's no reason to. That's not fun anyways. I want to hear, like, take me back to Bar Tartine. I love Bar Tartine. Do you think about the time when you were working at Bar Tartine and what that meant? And do you, do you ever reminisce about that time? And I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of Bar Tartine, but again, I'm, I'm proud not from what I did. I'm proud from the sort of four or five lives that it had. The last one being Nick Bala and Courtney Burns, who yeah. just did, you know, this amazing fermentation thing. I think that influenced all of us. I was pushing them to do this book just because I selfishly wanted to document what they were doing because you could see, you know, these guys are killing themselves and it's amazing, it's inspiring, but I'm also thinking, this isn't going to last, you know. Every time I go to a restaurant like that, I'm like, I tell everyone, go, because it, it can't last. It's too hard, but it's incredible. And, you know, that was very special. I mean, um, Jason Fox was there early on and it was really special, um, Chris Croner was there. He was doing amazing. He was sort of like shaping over the bridge when he was there. It was really special. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time um, in Bar Tartine. It went for 10 years. I can't, I can't even believe. That is a, a long life for a restaurant. So there's no, there's no failure when you close a restaurant of 10 years. It's just the evolution. Right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Nick and Courtney were going to buy it, and then they, they decided to kind of each do their own thing, and, and then... Thankfully, I just wanted to make sure it went to some, it turned into something that I, was, that I was proud of. And this company, Stone Mill Matcha, which is a Japanese company, built a beautiful little sort of bakery, savory, all-day cafe, all Japanese with incredible matcha. Like, they get some of the best matcha in the world, you know, from I don't, I've never, been, I haven't been back there. Yeah, it's, it, it's beautiful. They have a really good chef, and um, it's, it's like a great place to go. Highly recommend it. I prepped you for this. I don't know if you're going to take the, take the bait, but let's play the game Fuck, Mary Kill. It's a fun game. Fuck, Mary Kill, pan au chocolat, baguette, and cinnamon roll. Yeah, I mean, let's see. The thing I'm most passionate about is taking all those classic pastries and, and really swapping out the, sort of the white flour and all these conventional ingredients with more interesting ones which I, I think we've done it. A lot of people are doing it now, and um, I just want to keep trying to get that to the... I, I would love it if we could be using like lots of fresh-milled, higher-extraction, diverse grains to make classical pastries, you know? And, and they wouldn't really be classical. They would be progressive or modern at that point, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting They would at. look like the pastries that you would get potentially at like a gas station. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In my world, we're, we're sh- the classics. Yeah, we're shooting a little higher than that, but yeah, yeah, no, for sure. The aesthetic I'm talking about. For sure, for sure. So you're not taking the bait, okay? I, well, I, I thought about this a lot, but I'm yeah. like, I'm like, how do I? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of half taking the bait because if I could kill a morning bun, I shouldn't say this, but sometimes I do wish I could kill the morning bun. There, okay. but but at the same time, I can't. So yeah. what I'm thinking is, how do I turn it into something that's exciting to me without disappointing, you know, all the morning bun fans? Um, so we're, so we're sort of working on that, but you know, every chef will identify with this, like, like part of the, the biggest battle of, of changing some of your classic stuff is with your own team, you know, 
my team will say to me, Chad, that's not Tartine. And I'm like, uh, a big part of what we do is evolution, you know, like you guys understand that. And I, I just realized I'm, I have to push that because bakeries aren't, you know, restaurants and chefs and, and cuisine in general evolves, but bakeries, people kind of want their bakery to be the same, especially oh, if you're a corner bakery. They want, you know, the, the cookie to be the same, the croissant to be the same, the morning bun, the muffin, the coffee. And if anything, I mean, we've, I feel like we've maintained, you know, our core sort of, you know, offerings, but mm-hmm. we've evolved. I think we're doing our best work now. I mean, and, with, and the we can get, with, with Washington State in the picture, clearly. That's all of that, open. yeah. And, and we, can, we can always get better. I mean, I never, I say to people, we're never, we never mastered this. We never stopped learning. We never, we, we can't, we can always do better. Tell me, uh, are there cities that you visit for pastry and bread that we maybe don't know about um, as listeners of the Taste Podcast? Do you feel like there's some cities that you've been to where you're like really stoked about what's being made there? I mean, uh, that's a good question. I honestly, like, the places I've been that I've been sort of eating a lot, like, checking stuff out, like, like baked goods and bread is, is, you know, Tokyo and Seoul, mostly. I mean, there's, there's good bread stuff happening everywhere. Mexico City, um, New York has a bunch of bread happening now. Um, L.A., obviously. I think there's a lot of good bread in L.A. Sure. here, and I'm, I'm really honored to be joining the, the community. Um, but... Yeah, again, like Seoul, Seoul is a pretty interesting place right now. And, and Japan, I mean, when I first visited Japan, maybe seven or eight years ago, Tokyo, they famously, and a lot of people know this, they famously have, you know, maybe better French pastries and bread than, than in France. And, and it's true, it's super high quality, but they didn't, they, they had small pockets, but they didn't really have like, you know, a Japanese bread culture um, that, wasn't, that was popular, you know, that was as popular as the French stuff. And... You know, when I, I did some talks there and I, I, I did an interview with this sort of, you know, Japanese sort of sourdough guru, this guy, Ikeda, Mr. Ikeda-san, and, you know, my message was you guys shouldn't, you know, embrace your Japanese sort of food culture because you apply this to bread and, you know, there's so many amazing things you can do. That's a really good point. Like the Japanese bread style, how do you describe it then? Well, I mean... traditional. I, I, they don't have a tradition. They don't they, have a tradition. It's, right. it's, it's you know it's mostly French, and you can find sort of you know German style breads and stuff in in Tokyo and Japan also. But um, my my thinking was you know start growing your own wheat and start using some of these. They have a lot of grains that we don't have here that um, that are very interesting, and you know cooking these like making porridge breads out of them, just doing that kind of thing. So there are there are bakers that are doing that. There's a guy. Ayumu-san, who has a bakery called Sakurakur in Osaka, and he's partnered with a good chef friend, um, Namai-san, and at this bakery bricolage in, in Tokyo. And they're doing some of that. It's, it's, it's great. I'll definitely have to check those out. Okay, uh, last question. When you want a taco in Los Angeles, where do you go? Oh, geez. I'm going there. <laughs> I'm absolutely going there. <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, I can't, I'm new to LA and I'm already like, (laughs) I'm already trying to look on both sides and behind me here with (laughs) with everyone. Um, I can't say, but I've had so many, I've had so many incredible, you know, all the ones people love. It's like, there's Marisco's. It's like, it's like every kind, every kind of taco, like that you want, you can find here. I'm still, you know, my, my team, my team most are mostly is born and raised in LA and you know, every night they're trying to get me to go on taco crawls and bowling alley crawls and you know fried chicken crawls and 
LA is just, it's incredible. Food is so amazing. It's incredible, yeah. Chad Robertson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you, my pleasure. Here's Matt in conversation with Ed Levine, the founder of Serious Eats. Ed Levine, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Yeah, so good to be here, Matt. I have to say, I read your book in 48 hours. Um, it was it was a, a lightning read, but it wasn't the typical food book. It wasn't about finding good pizza, though you write about that. It was about your search for money. <laughs> it was my search for um, money and meaning. And I wanted to see if if those two things could be compatible. And so that was really the um, the impetus for starting Serious Eats and and what uh, my editor the story my editor wanted me to tell. So yes, it was. Of course, when you think about it, the idea that you would start a food blog in two thousand five as a vehicle for financial security is beyond <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. So but if you imbue every conversation you have with as much passion as an enthusiasm yeah. as I did, yeah. I actually convinced some people that that might yeah. happen. You you did. You convinced a whole team and many of them have written for taste. Yeah. And they're friends of ours and You've said, and we will get into the history of serious eats, but really the book. I just want to be clear from the from the start. It's it's a it's a great read. Um, it's about a small business uh, or medium sized business trying to hack it out in a world that maybe isn't ready for what you are doing. Absolutely, I think you were slightly ahead of the curve. No, that's it's- right. And by the way, I was trying to do it with limited funding, competing against media behemoths. That I would just convince myself, oh, they'll never figure this out. You know, it's the internet. It's <laughs> the web. It's web 2.0 world. Mm-hmm. And so I convinced myself that this was my path to both financial and creative freedom, yeah. right? It was all about let's get rid of all the gatekeepers. I don't want to pitch any more stories yeah. to my editors anywhere. And I was doing pretty well. I was writing for The Times and yeah. GQ and Gourmet and, mm-hmm. you know, but as you and I have talked about, it's still, it's still, here we are, you know, 13 years later and it's still no way to make a living. Yeah, it's it's challenging um, in journalism and media to make a living, but in food writing in particular, it can yeah. be challenging. I want to go back to the early days of food blogging. Sure. Like take us back to some of the listeners maybe um, weren't aware of food writing in the early 2000s into the mid 2000s. So tell me, what was it like? Who were, who was, who were you competing against? It was fascinating because... Um, People don't really remember but when I was doing research for the book, I realized that all the early food bloggers were in fact tech people mm-hmm. who were obsessed with food. So when you think about it, Heidi Swanson, 101 Cookbooks, mm-hmm. Elise Bauer, Simply Recipes, Meg Hurahan, who with Evan Williams – founded the software company that built the first blogging platform, mm-hmm. Blogger, yeah. and sold it was Google Google's first acquisition. Right. 
So they both made a lot of money before they were 35. Maybe it's not a lot of money now, mm-hmm. but it was a lot of money then. And so Meg decided that she would make Megnut into a food blog. Mm-hmm. So all, there was all this energy, food-related energy, mm-hmm. emanating from the tech community. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, when I started Series E, and even to this day, Matt, I am not a very tech-savvy tech person, you know. I'm, uh, and so I was so happy to find these people, like Elena Brown, who was my first general manager, started a food blog in 1998. Yeah. You know, so there were all, there were all these people, but they weren't doing it to make a living. Elena Brown is like a, sm- a small character or a small savior of the book. Yes, I feel. She's, she has a great, sure. prom- she's a prominent role in the book. Yeah. Love Elena. She's such a cool person. Yeah. And there, and, 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 and so when I discovered these people and for me, I was, you know, I was a successful freelance food writer. I'd written some books and, and had really good writing credits, but I had no tech background no tech savvy. So I was thrilled to meet them. And actually what had happened, I started Serious Eats. Um, it was the product of a television food network that I was developing for MTV Networks. I talk about this yeah. in the book. It was called Gusto that was going to compete with the food network. And so it was going to be a joint venture of Comcast mm-hmm. and MTV Networks. Mm-hmm. And like we shook hands on a deal. Mm-hmm. I made this incredible sales tape. And because I'd had a lot of experience as a consultant in the mm-hmm. me- that was the way I really mm-hmm. made my living. That was the secret Ed Levine, yeah. of Ed Levine making a living <laughs> was not the stories on where to find the best hamburger no. in New York. You talk about your agency experience. Yeah. And, and so how you kind of hated it. You know, it was just like and then all of a sudden they uh, Comcast pulled out of the joint yeah. venture and MTV Network said, oh, we can't do this on our own. It costs too much money. And in developing that channel, I had um, done some research about food blogs, mm-hmm. not really as much as I should have. But when they, when the guy who was running that initiative called me and said, hey, we're not going to do it. Sorry. You know, and I talk, and <laughs> I, <laughs> I do go into this in great detail in the book, I was like, shit, what am I going to do? And then this guy who I used to work for said, you know what? Sit in my chair. I'm going to log on to Blogger. You're going to start Ed Levine Eats. Mm-hmm. And away we went. Would Gusto have worked? I was wondering. Like, Do you feel like that could have, with the right backing, could you have actually taken on the Food Network with this more like New yes. York-based, cooler version yes. of the Food Network? Yes, and it was it, – because it, if you think about it, because the Food Network still doesn't do this because they don't have to, right? They have no competition. Yeah. It was my channel was going to be about the role that food plays in people's lives, and it was not going to be a stand and stir network. It was not going to be mm-hmm. an entertainment network, which is what they call themselves now in terms of primetime programming. It was going to be so I could tell the stories that I had discovered, you know, on TV. Mm-hmm. seemed to make perfect sense at the yeah. time. MTV bought it. Yeah. And then until they didn't. And so – and then I started blogging and it yeah. was just like so exciting 
to just hit send and watch your words fly all and over the, the world. And the feedback was instant. Yeah. And I talk about this moment in the book early on when it was just Ed Levine Eats, when I blogged about um, my about-to-be-lunch at Per Se, when I say, okay, I'm going to meet my friends for lunch at Per Se. At the time, it was $180 for lunch or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, I've been to the French Laundry and I felt like it was about the chef and not about the mm-hmm. the diners. And I didn't want to worship at the Church of Thomas Keller. And I figured out <laughs> in that blog post that for the price of the lunch at Per Se – that I could eat a Gray's Papaya Recession Special <laughs> every day for lunch for three months. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> so I go to Per Se. Yeah. Uh, you know, we they obviously recognized me as a food writer, so we got some things we didn't order. And then mm-hmm. the server comes out with this cloche and makes this grand gesture <laughs> of of uh, uncovering the cloche yeah. and there's a hot dog. Absolutely. And and so it's like, wow. People, so they were reading it. I mean, this is, this is it, like you know, early days. Yes, and I'm sure somebody just put, you know, the yeah. publicist put a Google alert yeah. on Thomas Keller's name. And so once I saw the power, if you combine the mm-hmm. power of the internet with the freedom, mm-hmm. with no distribution costs, where my distribution was just as... Uh, powerful mm-hmm. as Condé Nast, right? Mm-hmm. It was a great leveler. The internet, when yeah. it went back then, in 2005, 2006, yeah, and, and really the big companies didn't know what to do because no. they didn't want to, remember, they didn't want to kill the goose that was laying the golden eggs, yeah. right? Printed like, pages, yeah. Yeah, pa- print pages, yeah. that was a great business. Amazing business in the late 90s, into yes. the, the mid-2000s until you yep. got to the great 2008. And so I just depended session. on the, the fact that they wouldn't get yeah. it. But there were so many things that I got wrong. It was still, and, and that's a good segue, it still was really tough to hack it out because you still needed scale, you needed traffic, but... As a long-term reader of Serious Seeds, I never really saw the clickbait. No. You never went to clickbait. No, I never went to clickbait because – Which probably prevented you from making some money. Yes. And it probably did. You know, people would say, what's your SEO strategy? And we were growing really fast. Yeah. And my SEO strategy was we – Publish good shit, mm-hmm. and I hope that people find it. Yeah, you know. And so, no, we didn't. We tried reblogging, but we never like here's two kittens lapping yeah. up milk. You know, or covering like, fast food in a way that was just superficial. Right. So right. that that was the whole thing, because what the internet allowed me to do is follow my obsessions. Yeah, uh, which some editors allowed me to do. And so when I look for people to hire, that's what I looked for first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So it was like Kenji Lopez-Alt. Mm-hmm. He's obsessed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he was writing about like yeah. a hamburger story, right? That yeah, became a viral absolutely. hit. Absolutely, yeah. Matt yeah. Falk, Max Falkowitz, yeah. Aaron Zimmer, all these people yeah. that have written books and write for you. Some yeah. write for you now, mm-hmm. and it's and and so and what I could give them. If I could give them a staff job, that would be great. And, you know, but 
uh, what I could really offer them was creative freedom. Yeah. And so that was the most powerful magnet, I think, for Serious Eats. And also turned that out that I was pretty good at spotting talent mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we we grew in ways that I didn't imagine gro- growing, right? What it became, mm-hmm. of course, you know, I mean, in the book, I talk about this great pivot to recipes, right? Because yeah, I'd no never written a recipe in my right. life, right? And at first, I was just like, okay, you know, we'll publish five recipes and post five times about a cookbook. Right. And, you know, the publishers will love it because um, it's great promotion. And we had a, we were building, a, we built a pretty big audience pretty quickly. Yeah. And so uh, it was one of these things where, but we didn't really have the same, you know, people knew. When they, you know, I always say my goal with any writer I hire is like, I want people to know in the, after the first sentence or two, who it is. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, I didn't want to put people through the sausage grinder voice thing, you know, which mm-hmm. the food magazines did, like food and wine or whatever. Yeah, like it's that like, uniform voice that when you write freelance for any of these publications, you get the copy back and it's exactly. like weird. Exactly. It's barely yeah, recognizable. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, no, if you share my values, because right. it was a values-driven right. site and a values-driven company, then, you know, let it roll, baby. Yeah. And it was... It was magic. Let's talk about that yeah. chapter 14 title, The Great yeah. Slow Pivot to Recipes, because you were known as like a, a more dining out publication yeah. and spotting and foods around the world in, in in on location. But then you switched to home cooking, which is a big focus here at Taste. So I wanted to talk to you about it. What What really... I know that there was like a learning curve there, but really what were you seeing right away that people wanted to read about home well, cooking on the internet? Well, it's interesting. So I, I didn't think... We were going to ever have recipes beyond the what what were called cook the books. Mm-hmm. And then I had breakfast one day. Meg Hoorahan set me up with Nick Denton. It's mm-hmm. in the book, founder of founder Gawker. of Gawker, and you know a true whatever you think of Gawker. Um, he was smart as hell, digital visionary and savant yes, for sure. A digital visionary for sure. Yeah, and yeah. so he's like, first of all, he says. Um, I've looked at your site. The site was like three months old. I'm sure it sucked. And he's, uh, you know, looks nice. And he goes, but I've he- heard about you. You're too nice. And, and he said, I didn't see any gossip on the blog. And I was like, not my jam. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's not to say that somebody should write about who's sleeping with who in the, mm. uh, you know, or having sex in the in the walk-in, mm-hmm. but not going to be me. Or the openings and closings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he goes, okay. So he's sort of processing this. And it's like, what makes this guy tick? And then he goes, what about recipes? So I said to him, because my inimitable style, it's like, I don't think the world needs another recipe database. He pulls out his phone. How many recipe searches are there a month, do you think? I don't know, Nick. This is how ignorant I was. It's like I never thought about it, which is mind-boggling, right? So he looks it up. The first thing that comes up on Google is like – I don't remember what it was. like 20 million. 
So he starts to laugh. If I were you, I'd figure out a way to do recipes, <laughs> serious eat style. Yeah. And he had no interest in food. Um, in fact, he was an investor. I think he was an early investor in Eater. Because a lot Locke, of the brass. Locke yeah, Locke was the editor. Yeah. When Locke launched Eater with Ben Leventhal yeah. and that woman, I forgot her name. Uh, I think I've only met her once. Uh, Locke was still working at Cocker. Yeah. He was still the editorial director or whatever it was. And so uh, I was like, okay, but uh, I don't write recipes. What am I going to do? And, you know, the cook the books were reasonably successful, but you couldn't hang your hat on it, right? Because it was just a expanded version of what newspapers were doing. Yeah, we, books, we, we right? yeah, that's a tough type of content, cooking through a book. It doesn't have a very strong point of view. So Kenji had written a couple of burger reviews for Adam <laughs> Kuban, who was my first managing editor. And... And I was like, wow, man, this guy is a great writer and what a fantastic voice he has. And and I don't even know why I said this, Matt, but we had lunch and, and I'm like – because I said, let's get together for lunch. I want you to do more stuff for us. Mm-hmm. I mean I was paying him – I think I was paying him $25 mm-hmm. a story. Mm-hmm. Which was like as, as much as you could pay, yeah. right? And yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like, like I was taking a helicopter to the Hamptons. No, you know, no. it was like I didn't have any Because that number now is like a pretty crazy number and it's not equitable and, and yeah. we'd push back on that number. Sure. But back in the day, $25 for exactly. a story kind of worked. Yes. And it wasn't 10 and it wasn't it 5 wasn't, Yeah, it wasn't free. So, yeah. so I said to him, you know, Kenji – because he'd written this piece about um, the uh, – Heston Blumenthal burger, Mm -hmm. the Blumenburger, which had like, I don't know, like 30 steps and and a zillion ingredients. And and I was just like, wow, he's so smart. He makes all these pop cultural references and like he just needs to be here. And so I said, you know, I've always I've always been interested in someone writing a food science column Mm -hmm. and his face lit up, you know, and so it's like. Wow, like I've always wanted some. Mm-hmm. I've always, I've always wanted to write a food science column because he went to MIT, right? Yeah, and he's, he's well, went to MIT. His father's a famous professor, yeah, at Harvard Medical School, and I knew some of this, but not all of it. Yeah. And so I was like, and and then he wrote his. I think his first piece was how to boil an egg, mm-hmm. and oh man, I was like. And and the serious heat community, even though I thought I didn't know if they were going to be interested, they were like. This is the coolest thing because ever. it went back to the idea that a lot of people in the food blogging world were from the tech world and were from the world of, of yes. science, and yes. it was really a unique point of view. Kenji's food yeah. lab column, for absolutely, you. really it was cool. This, this really is unusual. Sort of, I used to yeah. call it um, uh, uh, the Simpsons meets Harold McGee. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, with recipes. Yeah. Yeah, plenty of and, recipes. And right. he was funny and smart yeah. and he took you – I, I say in the book and, and, and he says in, in the forward, which I loved that he wrote for the book, you know, I wanted everything on Serious Eats to be story-driven. Mm-hmm. So – and Kenji's a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. 
and he takes his readers on a journey. So once I saw how people were responding and I thought about, okay, so, well, Kenji's giving us a recipe strategy. I got the guy to do it. <laughs> so it's like, and then I said, maybe you want to be our recipe czar because I, when I look over recipes, either from books mm -hmm. or whatever or other contributors, like, I don't know what to look at. Yeah. So the recipes work, though. I mean, you've, yeah. you've gained audience through recipes and more so than the actual service pieces. And yes. The, uh, like where to eat out and where to yes. dine out in X, Y, And service city. pieces, as you know, yeah. having a lot of experience, yeah. are by their nature local. Sure. Unless you have an unlimited amount of money to do a story on the best pizzas. Comes in, travel. In, yeah, yeah. America. But yeah. So uh, the recipes were universally Absolutely. had universal appeal in potentially at least, and then so that's that was the slow pivot, you know. But yeah. once we pivoted, we really pivoted. We really because, did because you know, look, you take other people's money, and I and I just said this to, to my editor at lunch. You know, it's like what I couldn't admit, Matt was that I was taking other people's money. They were all friends and family, no mm -hmm. institutional money. So I could have my dream job. Mm. Nobody wants to give you money so you can have your dream job. No. and They want something that can scale. So when I talk about this in the book. You like, really do get into the weeds of – and it's really remarkable because I think a lot of folks don't really get to, to hear about what it's like to raise and what it's like to raise more. And then all the internal strife that you had. I mean – It was crazy. It was tense, and so it was like times. Uh, I, well, the first deck's like, we're going to get to $40 million in sales by year three. Yeah. And I was going <laughs> to be like – but that was the only way you could yeah. raise Money. Yeah. Nobody, if you said, okay, we'll get to $750,000 and you'll, maybe you'll make a little bit of money in 15 years down the road. No, people want a return. Which is, just going to get on my own soapbox yeah. a bit. I think VC backed media, uh, taste is not VC backed media, um, is tricky. And when you try to scale media, me media is more about like positive EBITDA, like really just making money every quarter, a slow growth. For and, sure. You know, and people make this mistake time after again. I'm still seeing launches where they want to scale, scale, scale. But this is journalism we're talking about. No, this is it's not journalism doesn't a, a widget. scale. It Absolutely. doesn't scale. It no. doesn't scale. And by the way, it turned out to be an absolute blessing that there was no institutional or VC yeah. or private equity money in Series Eats. Yeah. Because my investors, which were all literally friends and family or friends of friends – that was as far out as I could go. Look, they were all they all when they when they when they, we were struggling to make payroll, it's not as if they would always give me money so that I could continue. But the point is they never did they never did anything to force me to sell or to change what I did. They let me do my thing and in retrospect, it was the only way we yeah. survived because you're right. It's like if you've got venture money or if you've got private equity money, they're looking to grow and harvest. <laughs> you know, they're not looking mm – -hmm. they're not looking to give Ed Levine his dream job or for – to your – in your, as, as to do what you said, which is – which was always my goal. It's like I just wanted to be self-sustaining. Definitely, just make your. Bills. I didn't. I didn't yeah. 
tell them that, you know. And there was a brief moment and Mm -hmm. more than a moment, uh, as I outline in the book, we were almost bought about 10 times. Yeah. Some familiar uh, names in there, and and I and listener, you should definitely pick up the book to to kind of if you have any interest in in small business, if you have any interest in food media historically, this is a must read because I think it's your story which is like unique. Yeah, is, and it's a very you know I I, I say I, I say this all the time now it's it's a great story well told. Whether you're a, an, another editor uh, at Random House that I just saw mm-hmm. just stopped me and it's like, I loved your book and I'm not a foodie. Mm-hmm. And the re- same reason you read it in mm-hmm. two days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there are people who work at Serious Eats like, I know, I knew what was going to happen, how it ended mm-hmm. up and I still couldn't sleep, you know, until I finished the book and that's yeah. the highest yeah. praise. No. I felt... Look, I didn't know, Matt. I I was even capable of writing this kind of book. I've never written a a book-length nonfiction narrative. You know, that's very personal. And maybe there's too much information for some people about my life. But I felt like it was all relevant to the story. Absolutely. There was nothing that was um, superfluous. So, Ed, uh, is it a happy ending? It is a happy ending. It's... No spoilers. Yeah. Let's not do that for yeah, our listeners. Yeah, but it's a happy ending because Sirius Eats lives. Sure does. And just there last night. And it's really still great. Mm-hmm. And people still derive pleasure and utility from something that I started from a blank piece of paper, which is – I mean, how many people get to say that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I've had the blessings of that it taste to be able to create something, and I, and I don't take it for granted. No, and, uh, if you create something that makes millions of people happy, yeah, uh, with, not at the expense of other people, that's a beautiful thing, yeah. right? I mean, I know that sounds Pollyannish, <laughs> but I genuinely think it's true. And the other thing, and I don't know if you feel this way about taste, is. You know, to be able to hire young, talented people and watch them take flight is one of the greatest things you can do, whether you're at a corporation or whether you're doing it on your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that Kenji Lopez-Alt and Max Falkowitz and all these people, some of which we have shared, Mm -hmm. uh, to watch them take flight is just a source of endless pleasure really and satisfaction is. you know so I, I think food media in 2019 um there are challenges so this is not to say we are not at a perfect point but i think the growth has been really tremendous i think we're seeing new voices people coming from outside of this food writing world to write yes. about food um i think there is equity certainly in terms of the representation on mastheads i think it's getting better I think it's for sure there's been a lot of thought that's gone into it. And also there's a lot of unions now, which was not the case a decade ago. For sure. And no unions. And the food culture touches every subject, you know, whether it's politics, economics, race, class, uh, everyone eats. Yeah. And so um, and everyone, no matter how much money you have. Their face lights up when they're thinking about, oh, man, 
what I wouldn't give for a piece of fried chicken right now, <laughs> or whatever. You know, it could be broccoli. It doesn't matter whether it's broccoli. Rice. Or, yeah, it doesn't matter. That's the point. And so, yeah. and 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 I think that's what makes food media still interesting yeah. is the way it's expanded its purview. You know. Yeah. I have to ask you, Ed, about some of your favorite New York City spots because sure. obviously we uh, we kind of glossed over your, your your early career, but you were really well known for for spotting these outer borough restaurants yes. and a couple categories in particular. I think you had a lot of strength at which is pizza, bur and burgers. So oh, sure, just right on the spot, I'm putting you on the spot. So two favorite pizzas and two favorite sure. burgers in so New York. The funny thing is, is that when I wrote my first book about New York City food, non-restaurant food, it's called New York Eats, came out in 90, 1992 and mm-hmm. makes people laugh now is that the first people that wrote about the book were like, Ed Levine went to Brooklyn to eat. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't you go to Brooklyn to eat? Because people thought you needed a visa to go to Brooklyn if you <laughs> lived true. in Manhattan. So, you know, pizza is exploded and of course i wrote a whole book on pizza called pizza a slice of heaven uh but the the pizza culture has expanded so much so that it's now we're now past styles of pizza so we do have neapolitan american and neapolitan and detroit and all this stuff but we have actual there are actually people that are creating their own style of pizza so it started with chris bianco and Pizzeria Bianco in, in Phoenix, Anthony Mangieri with Una yeah. Pizza Napolitana. But, the, you know, they, they've they been around a while and Anthony moved to San Francisco. Chris is in Phoenix and now he's got a place yeah. in L.A. Anthony's back though in New York. What? Anthony's back in New and York. And Anthony's though. back in New York. Yeah. But there are a couple of places that I really love. Um, one, they're both slice places, interestingly Great. enough. One is called Mama's Two. On a hundred between 105th and 106th on yeah. Broadway, it's tiny, and um, I was talking to Pete Wells about it, and then I loved it because I think Pete is really the best restaurant critic we have. Yep. He decided, okay, he went up there with his son. He was blown away by the pizza. He's, <laughs> he calls me. He says, "I'm going to review it like it's a restaurant." It's like it was so awesome. So that pizza is great. It's squares. Uh, it's also very oil. long lines now. Very and long very lines, hard. and that's it's my bad. I'm yeah. really sorry, everybody. No, well. But it's great, and um, the guy who runs it is trying to keep up with demand, and it's really hard. And the other place that I don't think gets enough love is a place called Corner Slice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the Gotham West Marketplace Love on Forty Fifth and Eleventh. It is Ivan Ramen's Ivan. Uh, pizza place that he did with a guy who I think was a chef mm-hmm. working for him named Mike Bergman. Mm-hmm. And th- again, they develop. Uh, if you ever talked to Mike Bergman about his dough, and they were obsessed. Yeah, the dough maturation and and the it's the so light. It's, it's really and unique dough. It's yeah. a unique dough with. And and every slice is great. Yeah. 
and there's never a line, at least when I've gone. It's in that weird space. Yeah. It's tough. I wish it's it was a, in a better location. Yeah, and so I'm mall. hoping that if they don't make it in that location that they won't just fold up shop. Yeah. Oh, no. Ivan, and he's been on the podcast, and he's he speaks about this business being a long-term thing. I agree. It's a very slept and slice. Yeah. It's a very – let's go on to burgers. I know this is a category that maybe <laughs> had its moment in 20, 2008 and is kind of like yeah. cooled off a little bit, I think. Yeah. I mean – I was reminded somebody I, I don't know I just happened to be find someone writing about burgers and someone remember and then I remembered the burger at Roberta's. That burger is so serious, man, and it's not that expensive. Yeah. It's not like the black label burger at Mineta Tavern, and it's delicious. Um, comes with fries on a. On a Maybe a house-made potato bun, but mm. it's a per- – in many ways, that's my favorite burger because I like to hear wow. – you know, I mean, I haven't had it in a while, so I hope I'm I'm not talking about something that's – It's okay. Are you getting pies too? Are you doing both? What? At Roberta's? Are you yeah, I like the pies, yeah. but I actually think the pizza is less distinctive than the burgers, even though they're famous for pizza. Now yeah. they have frozen pizza. Yeah, and of course, the, the – uh, the original pizzaiolo, Anthony Falco, has gone on to be this uh, pizza consultant yeah. of world renown. Very like, so. if you want to open a pizzeria in Sao Paulo, you call Anthony. Anthony and Falco comes... getting getting paid too. Yes, getting paid. He's awesome. Yeah. And so, uh, so I'm trying to think of what's my favorite. Um, What's another favorite burger of mine? Uh, God, there's so many. You're right. There's so many good yeah. burgers. Um, but I do like burgers, and I'm willing to pay yeah. for them to be made. For me, JG Melon and Shake Shack. Really? Okay. I've had melon only recently. Yeah, so. yeah. Shake Shack is a remarkably consistent burger. I was trying to think of a place that – because everyone knows Shake Shack at this time, at this point, you know, it's become ubiquitous, but it is it's delicious. It's good. It's so good. It's underrated because it is like McDonald's. Obviously, it's not like McDonald's, but it's everywhere. It's in JFK. And- yeah. I'm trying to think of uh, what's a, a cheaper burger. You know what's an awesome burger? You're going to laugh. It's not far from here, dude. Oh, I know If it. you told me you haven't been, I'm going to be really upset. It's Steak and Shake. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say Parker Meridian. No. Which is right down the street. Oh, so I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, you did? So you know all about Steak and Shake. Of course. So Steak Steak and Shake has one location. It was an experiment, right, where they were using – they were making a better burger and and they make this burger that's a patty melt. I think they call it the San Francisco. The Frisco melt. 100%. 100%. Right. I used to go okay. to the used to go to the Maple Hill Mall. I used to watch movies when I was like 14 and we used to go get the Frisco Melt. The Frisco Melt rocks, dude. So it does. And nobody knows that place. It's in the it's right next to the Ed Sullivan Theater yeah. uh where I guess Stephen Colbert Colbert's, is now yeah. uh recording his show yeah. and it's an amazing burger, and nobody writes about no, it. No, I thank you for taking us to that that place, that happy place, which is Shake Shack. Yeah, and it's awesome. It's... And dude, you work two blocks from <laughs> I know, there. I know. It's a little embarrassing, Matt. That you know, you grew up in Kalamazoo <laughs> on that burger. I know. And you're less than a hundred yards I... away. 
Yeah, we're in we're in your Times Square. I feel like I well, Ed, I cook I cook my lunches. You do? I bring my lunches from home. Yeah, I mean it's like save some money. Yeah, yeah, and also for sure. just it's a great reason to cook every week. Is like I'm gonna do some meal prep. Yeah, but you're right. I need to go there. I want to ask you. Yeah, we ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast. Yeah, if you were to be given unlimited resources, unlimited time. What would your dream book project be? You know, it's a weird thing, and I know this is going to sound – I didn't know it at the time. This turned out to be my dream book project. You know, when I first started it, I thought it was going to be a prescriptive business book, and then I was like, Ed, that's a joke. You know, as my wife said, yeah, the subtitle would be how not to start a business, you know, and – but. It's it's not just because I got to tell my story because what I love about this book is that it's both a cautionary tale and and I hope an inspirational one. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to write a book like that that people can read and will be captivated by that they can actually take away something from it's not that they i'm not giving them a roadmap to starting oh, a business it's a cautionary tale more it's, than yes anything. exactly yeah, no but in the end i wanted to communicate that you can do this it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy in fact it yeah. means that it's going to be really hard it's not a, going to be a linear process. You're going to have the highest – you're going to enjoy the highest highs and endure the lowest lows often in the same day, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and here's the thing. Whether it's a food business or not, most of the businesses you read about in uh, media are LinkedIn – or I just read about uh, uh, Slack's public offering. It's like that's one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. And then you read about the flame – the multi you know, hundred million dollar mm-hmm. flame outs. That's one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent on the other – in the other direction. People who start businesses, large, medium, small – they all live in the 99.9% of what's left. Mm-hmm. And this story is about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about one guy trying to realize what I'm sure to an outsider seemed like an impossible dream. And so I don't know. I mean, there, look, there's lots of books I want to write, um, but, you know, to, this turned out to be just a fantastic mm-hmm. experience. Not easy, super painful in parts, no. you know. But uh, in the end, you stuck the landing, I think. With yeah, the execution of it. exactly. It, and it that's was, the thing. I had read. no idea yeah. that I could even do that. No. You know, if you would have said to me, okay, I'm going to give you money and you're going to write a feature, uh, a book-length nonfiction narrative, mm-hmm. you know, be like, me? I can tell you where to get good pizza. You want me to write a book about pizza or burgers? Yeah. Do that in my sleep. Yeah. Write a book about my life um, in a in a sort of in a way that's not self congratulatory yeah. or 
um, egocentric in the least is that's a gift yeah. that that they gave me to do yeah. and and i'm really grateful you know it was it's it's uh, it's rare as you know as yeah. a writer when you get that opportunity sometimes you get it without even knowing you're getting yeah. it yeah. and so. Levine, thank you for joining the taste podcast oh it's been great to be here matt Here's Matt with Donna Leonard. Donna Leonard, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. You've owned a restaurant and operated a restaurant in New York City since 1994. Let's just take a pause. And like that is a remarkable amount of time to run a restaurant in the most difficult state to run a restaurant in. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 1994, let's talk about your neighborhood. It, it was very different. Crack vials on the sidewalk, you know, artisan residents, lots of parking lots. Um, empty spaces. Empty spaces, which are now all completely filled. Real artists. Beautiful condos, very modern, you know, fancy condos. Yeah. It's NoHo, right? We'll call it? It's NoHo. And yeah, no, it's officially no ho. It's officially no ho, and and considered an artist um, destination. There's a lot of artist lofts there. T tell tell me a little bit about um, how you you found the space because I think that's a really cool story, and how you decided to open a restaurant because it wasn't a traditional opening. No, not at all. Um, you know, at that point, I was um, collecting antiques with my crazy Italian partner Alberto. Um, I had uh, been through a kind of crazy personal tragedy um, a couple years before, and, and my life went into turnaround. I lost my fiancé, mm -hmm. and I um, was working on producing his screenplay that I eventually put down for a while when all this happened. But I went to work as a bartender at Arqua in between while I was working on his uh, screenplay, and I met this you know, very eccentric, charismatic gentleman named Alberto Valle. And he wanted to either move back to Europe or export Americana to Spain and Italy. So I said, let's go to Europe. <laughs> I was like, let's get, you know, change the life completely. No, 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 no. I know where to buy all these antiques in Pennsylvania. And there are these fairs and markets. So we started collecting in our Suzuki Samurai. Hmm. We would like drive back across Route 78 like the Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> you know, the car stacked up with antiques that were strapped onto the roof and, you know, half falling out the sides. And it was real word of mouth to find these markets, right? I mean, there's no, obviously not much of an internet presence. No, not so much. Mm -mm, no. 94. He, I don't know how he had all this information. <laughs> he, had, he had stored it up. And, um, and I was driving myself back across, um, back to our apartment on 11th Street and Avenue C. Mm -hmm. And I decided to turn right on Bond Street instead of going up Lafayette. And I saw Spectra Photo Labs opening. And being a hobby photographer and filmmaker, you know, I pulled over and I thought, oh, cool, another Spectra, you know. And, uh, and next door were these incredible chandeliers in the window mm -hmm. of the space at 47. And I wandered in because we were looking for a space to set up this kind of export business mm -hmm. and walked in and met Warren Muller, who was the lighting artist and mm -hmm. his partner, um, 
two other partners, terrific guys, and um, Michael and Patricia. Mm-hmm. And it turned out they knew Alberto, mm-hmm. and they were in dispute with their landlord, and they wanted to rent out the back room of their space. They were in dispute with the landlord about the rent, and they were raising yeah. the rent from seventeen fifty a month to two thousand. How, how many square? It's like two thousand square 2, feet. Two thousand square feet. So, <laughs> whoa, those numbers are interesting. Very. <laughs> those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> two thousand for two thousand in NoHo. So I brought Alberto in the next day, and he was like, "If I can't make money on this two thousand a month, I'm going home." Fair. And, yeah. Absolutely. Fair assessment. Yeah. So. Um, they decided they were going to move back within like a month. They decided they were going to move back to Philly because they owned a building in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they gave our name to the landlord. We struck a deal for 2100 a month for a 10-year lease. I think there was a little mm-hmm. bump up after five years to yeah. 3000 or something yeah, like yeah. that. And um, and we went upstate. We went you know, kind of northeast uh, Pennsylvania and met up with some uh, with a couple who be, we'd been purchasing a number of things from and they were storing our big pieces because they didn't fit in our apartment mm-hmm. anymore and um, did some auctions and went to some sales and to different antique stores filled two 17 foot, foot trucks yeah. with um, antiques and came back and scraped the paint off the floor and painted yeah. the walls and opened this store. And said, okay, we're going to apply for a wine and beer license. Okay, so and right away you were like, I need this to be uh, a place for people to hang out in addition to sell these antiques. There was a little genius vision behind Alberto, always. He was always plotting. He always had a million and one ideas. Was that just to get people in the shop to buy antiques? Yeah. Just strictly like I foot mean, traffic? We'll yeah. get a wine and beer license. We'll serve little snacks. We'll have wine, a beautiful little boutique list of wine. Yeah. Just enough to compliment the food because you can't drink without eating and da 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 da. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we set everything up and uh, our wine and beer license arrived, dated his 40th birthday. We invited our landlords for this incredible lunch that he prepared in the back little kitchen that we had. Was there gas? No. <laughs> Electric so. Susie Homemaker Fi- stove. Figured, yeah. You know, industrial sink for the ceramic artist yeah. and a refrigerator and that was it in the <laughs> back room. And... Um, Made this lunch. They were so bowled over by what we had done with the space that they agreed to give us an eating and drinking go-ahead without changing the rent. And that's what we did. And that's how Buko was born. That was how Buko was born. It's an amazing story. Tell me a little bit about your first customers. When, who were some of the folks coming in? I mean, some of them we know as, as filmmakers and artists. Some of them are maybe more anonymous. But you really started generating a crowd, a scene, and which has remained to this day, uh, Ilbuco is a place we, we were joking about. It's a safe space for people of all, a lot of artists and people in fashion and media. But but who are these first customers? Oh, boy. I mean, Chuck Close forever, John Darian, mm-hmm. Glenn O'Brien, um, you know, even Matt Damon, early days, Liev Schreiber, um, so many, you know, Jill Platner. Incredible artist. See Lieb at the restaurants a lot just now, yeah. today. I, yeah, I, I've the, seen him there. You know, Inez and Vinut. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so many people. Just was, you know, yeah. Harvey Keitel. I mean, since the early days. Just an incredible. And people would just come and hang out and, you know, be anonymous. And Donna, this is really to your credit. I really, You are a host, but you, you, you just, you tell us a little bit about why 
why this clientele? How did you make everyone feel welcome? We created a space. We created a safe space. And we created a space that really matched our own personal aesthetic. It wasn't really... I think the the magic of Obuko is that we weren't trying to do something. It wasn't like we had this concept that we needed to create. Alberta yeah. walked into that space after I drove across the cobblestones that fateful day. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, this space has has it. You know, it has this special energy. And I think we just followed the energy of the space and we put in the things that we loved and -hmm. we created a space that really was comfortable for us and people came in and and the idea was the people who get this are going to be our clientele. They're going to come. And what, tell us a little bit about the food. What what were you serving once? I'm sure Mm -hmm. you expanded a little bit from the, from the electric stove, but what kind of food were you serving there? Well, first of all, you know, the edict was, this will not be a restaurant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> from Alberta. We sat down with our wine distributors. You know, we had, you know, Dan Lerner from Skernick, and we had Tyson Tinsley from, uh, he was at Martin Scott in those days, and, you know, a few little boutique, little uh, distribution companies. They were small then. And sat them all down to lunch, and Alberto just proclaimed that we would never be a restaurant, that this was going to be a wine bar with little tapas. Mm -hmm. And he would go, he was the opening chef, so untrained Mm. chef, but Mm. incredible cook. So we'd go to Union Square and pick up, you know, soak some chickpeas and make a little chickpea salad and um, little greens here. And we'd go, we went to the Catskills to a smokehouse and we ordered Mm. smoked meat. And we went up to Great Barrington where we'd been antiquing. And found this incredible smokehouse called Merrimack. And we sent, you know, FedEx and refrigerated, mm. you know, boxes our smoked fish. And then a little gamba salsal in the beginning. Mm. Maybe we picked up some angulas. We mm. shipped them in from, we, I think we got them from this guy, um, Yosu Ugarte in Stratford, Connecticut. This oh. Basque guy who was importing. So it was an imported yeah, bus, yeah. Little things. And we had the little terracotta pots mm-hmm. and. You know, we made bacalao piu piu once mm-hmm. in a while, and we had our friend uh, Rick Locken and the chef at the River Cafe oh, cool. would send over, you know, a couple buckets of the house soup from the River Cafe oh. or every once in a while a foie gras terrine. And we just put together, huh. you know, a little makeshift fun menu. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. It probably struck a chord, too, which is a European clientele, people who wanted to eat like you were in Barcelona in the 90s or parts of Italy, right? I mean, Absolutely. You know, beautiful cheeses, yeah. I think from Murray's at that time, and also from Yozu, we got, you know, the the um, Iriazabal and yeah. the Cabrales. And it was it was really like a bunch of different things that we love to eat. I wanted to ask you, just pushing the story forward a little bit, um, with with your, your second restaurant, um, Ibuko Montari. Uh, you had, well, also at Ibuko, you, you've, you've had a number of chefs. You've, you've brought in chefs to the fold. Um, a couple names, um, that are really well known, um, Ignacio Matos and Justin Smiley. Those are your, your chefs. And you saw something in these two individuals before anyone else, really. Yeah, I think, uh, (laughs) they're two very different chefs personalities for sure totally different personalities different experiences um ignacio came to me from francis melman who's a dear friend of mine who i met through peter kaminsky some like 14 years ago um and 
you know, I was sitting with him and his and his wife and kids in their house in East Quag, and I was like, I really need a chef. And he's like, you know, his daughter Alexia said, what about Nacho? I started talking, well, you know, he's a bit hot-headed, but he's really talented, you know, yeah, yeah. And it was like, you know, reverberated around the pool. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. I, I flew him over from Uruguay, and I, you know, he, he cooked one meal for me, and it was like... Mm-hmm. I think that's the the closest I ever came to really the instinct that wow immediately first tasting mm-hmm. first meeting this is my guy. Did you know at that moment that this was food that would resonate with your customers or were you just going with this food you personally really enjoyed? What were you thinking about in that during that tasting? This is going to sound wrong but I never think about it. It's customer. Please, my customer. No, no, it's not wrong. I mean, the the concept from the beginning was we're going to do what we love, and the people who love it are our customers, and we're going to turn people on to things that they've never had, and we're going to have fun with it, and the people that get that and want that and are into that are going to be mm-hmm. our our following, our clientele, and if they don't get that, then they're good. There's so many other choices, so you know, and if you don't work from your heart, I think mm-hmm. you're. And it's just not us. It just has never been us. It's never been me in anything that I do. So, um, so it's number one. It appealed to me, and I know that if it appealed to me, it's going to appeal to my clientele, most likely. Um, and you know, Ignacio was twenty-five years old. He had just gotten married. I was about to have a baby. You know, it was a very special moment in both of our lives. And um, you know, he came over in March to start. I gave birth March 18th, mm-hmm. you know, brought up my son on kale salad. <laughs> <laughs> that was Ignacio's dish. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so that was a five-year really great relationship. Mm-hmm. We're still incredibly great friends. And um, he'll be cooking during the this year for the 25th anniversary celebration. We'll get to that because I think it's really exciting. About 25. Doesn't, wow, 25 years. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Wow, when you say it out loud. Let's talk about Justin Smiley, too. So Justin was totally different. Um, Justin was recommended to me by someone who was working with me as a consultant, um, a guy named Lee Chaslow, uh, who's now in the wine business. And, um, you know, he'd been cooking at Sunset Beach, you know, worked at The Standard. And um, so there's this young guy. He's really great. He did his first tasting for me, and I was like, okay, you know. Good food, but I wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't that, wow, this is it, first tasting. But I thought, really nice guy, really like this guy. And then I was actually about to hire somebody else as the executive chef, and I was like, mm, I need I need somebody else at El Buco. And, um, and I brought Justin back in mm-hmm. for another tasting. And this time it was really like on point, and I was like, okay. You know, he this guy really has something. But, it, you know, with Justin, it was more we grew together and mm-hmm. his real talent for me, um, I understood as I started working with him um, more and more. And it was like, wow, this guy is really talented. Well, he clearly learned a lot from you as well. And, and, and his career really just evolved um, at Elementary and then leaving and moving to Upland and 
you know, writing books and all that. But he must have learned. What did you teach him? Because you clearly taught him something. A lot of things, not just something. <laughs> I I don't know what I taught him. He'll tell he'll he'll say that I that he learned a lot. I think yeah. um, I think what he learned from me was really involved just my palate as a bounce board for him. I think some chefs, um, I think a lot of chefs really grow when they um, have somebody pushing them on the other side. And so it was, just, it was. It wasn't like I was like, no, it needs to be like this. But it was more like, how about this? Or this sounds great, but for me, I would like a little more acid. Mm-hmm. What about this ingredient? And and I do very little. Um, it's just if it's the right combination with me, then the person who's working with me with their own talent and experience, they just they push in directions that you know, mm-hmm. can can make them more successful mm-hmm. if it if it goes that way. And mm-hmm. I think with Justin, it was that way. We were a great combo. But you 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 are doing you're in the restaurant constantly and you're tasting all the time, right? Just to Absolutely. Be clear. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not a trained chef. I'm not you know, I love to cook. People like to come to my house to eat because it'll always be great ingredients and simple and and yummy. But I'm not I'm not a chef. Yeah. OK. But you're I mean, the trained chef thing. I mean, there's a lot of really bad trained chefs. It, okay. It's just having a palate. And you've got a, a remarkable palate. Um, let's talk a little bit about just your interests in general and your your travels, because clearly uh, you're well traveled and you are inspired by the world of food. Um, where where have you gone recently that's been interesting to you? And and also, do you bring back ideas from – it could be travel upstate or it could be travel to Ibiza where you have another restaurant. Um, just talk about that. Well, first of all, I love to travel. Um, you know, my son was in his baby Bjorn three months, you know, crossing the Atlantic. So um, my most recent trip was Morocco and Ibiza. Mm-hmm. So Morocco's been on my on my list for quite some time, and we actually canceled a trip a few years ago when there was, you know, some ISIS stuff going on, and and my my husband happened to have been in um, in Italy at the time, and they raised the alert for Morocco, so we canceled a fully mm-hmm. planned trip. So since we had to go to um, to Ibiza to spend the new year, I wanted to sh- to ring in the new year with my new team um, after the first year uh, in Santa Gertrudis. I said, okay, let's take the first week and go to Morocco. Oh. We had some clients who live in Marrakesh, Ibiza clients, and invited us to spend Christmas Day with them. And we planned a trip down to the desert. And oh. we, had a, we had a great one week. It was short and sweet, but yeah. it was incredibly inspiring food-wise. Mm-hmm. So in answer to that question, I, whenever I'm traveling, I'm bringing back ideas and getting inspired by wherever I am. Oh, I love that. What's it like running a restaurant, owning a restaurant in Ibiza? I feel like there's like there's clearly uh, a perception, accurate or not, that it's um, known for uh, a young party scene. But I mean, is that true, or is there like a side to Ibiza that maybe we don't know about? I think there are two very distinct sides to Ibiza. There is the party island side. Mm-hmm. My first trip to Ibiza was probably six or seven years ago, um, during October, like the middle of October, mm-hmm. when most of the restaurants were closed and certainly all the clubs were closed. And I just, you know, I never wanted to go there because I'm not this party girl. So, you know, that reputation was like, okay, maybe Mm -hmm. Formentera. So um, had a beautiful, you know, 10-day trip and went over to Formentera, which is absolutely exquisite. Mm -hmm. 
um, and was completely dead that time of year. There was one restaurant open on the island oh, of Formentera. Um, Ibiza is magical and beautiful and has an incredible energy. And I think um, people go there as much for that as they do for the party time. Mm-hmm. And so the summer months can be a little bit raucous and there can be a lot of traffic on the island. But we're in the center in a little village called Santa Gertrudis, which is really far from the matting crowd okay. with a real um, year-round community, a lot of expats, mm-hmm. a lot of locals. So it's a different mm-hmm. it's a different side of the island. Is it a good place to own a business? <laughs> Ask me next year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the first year was, um, you know, challenging. We didn't open till mid-June, so yeah. we didn't, you know, get enough time to build momentum, but we did incredibly well. Um, we became, I think, a little favorite of a lot of people. Um, got a lot of great attention and a lot of people from New York, you know, discover, rediscovered mm-hmm. us there. And people who live in Europe are like, this Il Buco, New York. So um, it was a great year in many ways. Financially, I think it wasn't the best. Um, and getting through the winter now and getting yeah. ready to reopen and figuring out, you know, employment contracts. And, oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of complicated issues to deal with. I love going to Spain. I did it because I love Spain. Um, I'm looking forward to having things a little more organized in yeah. the next year or so so that I can go there and just kind of kick up my feet and, and relax a little more. But it's it's a beautiful place to be any time of year. I'm sure also, I'm sure it's not relaxing. I'm sure owning a restaurant is always going to be – there's going to be something going on. But let's talk about New York. I mean, it's just so difficult right now running restaurants here. The margins are smaller than ever. There's a lot of competition. People are incredibly distracted um, in the world and, and food, sometimes people just don't really think about dining out. It's more about necessity. How do you uh, mitigate these challenges with uh, with your business? Well, Il Buco Bond Street seems to be immune to anything going on in the world. Um, I'm going to knock on some wood in this yeah. studio. Just yeah, that's... thank you. <laughs> Me too. Um, you know, there's something about, you know, like what, what Alberto said in the beginning, there's this energy here. It seems to be guided by our, our guardian angels. Um, and I think Il Buco is a place where people come to seek comfort. So, you know, when there's a tragedy, be it 9-11 or the stock market crash in 2008 or, you know, Trump being elected, need I say, you know, people... I mean, we were there. We had a. We were there during the election. We had an event, a party, mm-hmm. and it was, it was intense. It was an intense yeah. evening, but um, I think, you know, it's a local place where people come, where they want to see friends and feel good and relax, and so Obuka has its own um, energy that keeps it going. Alimentary is a much bigger beast, a much bigger machine, a lot more going on with production, salumi, bread, pastries mm-hmm. for both restaurants. Um, it's a much more, you know, it's it's like the octopus with the <laughs> eight legs. You know, there's a lot of, um, of things to control. So it's definitely more challenging financially as a model. Yeah. Um, and we're always looking at new ways of, you know, Give an example because deck. you have to create newness always. I mean, the restaurant, while incredibly consistent in my personal meals there, it still isn't the new place. I mean, it's not the Fish Cheeks place down the street that gets all the press. No, no diss at Fish Cheeks, but like you're just not the new name place. So how do you how do you keep people coming into a, a large restaurant like Alimentari? 
Well, you just keep working really hard. I brought in my nephew, Danny Rubin, two years ago, called me up from from college and said, I want to be in the restaurant business. Mm. And uh, we whisked him off to Italy for two weeks over the summer. He started in June after college. And then in August, we spent two weeks with Alberto and Roberto and my son, Joaquin. And we traveled through central Italy and Sicily to see where the inspiration Mm -hmm. came from. And he came in and was put in charge of the alimentary itself, the counter, and has t- increased the business remarkably wow. since he arrived. So um, that's been a bit of a game changer. I sent him off to Ibiza to open that last summer. And, you know, on his own first project was, you know, remarkable and then came back, and now we're bringing the incredible focaccia that we're making over there. The the Bottega il Buco in Ibiza has a base as a kind of focacceria, a wine bar with tinned fish from Spain and Portugal. And we do, of course, all kinds of beautiful ceviches and crudos and hot dishes and, and this and that. But the focaccia itself is made with an ancient grain uh, flour from Sicily. And it's so delicious that we brought that over, mm-hmm. and he just started making the focaccia at the alimentary counter. Hot tip. Got to try out the focaccia at the alimentary counter. Nice. So we're just launching that. So, you know, each thing we're looking at, maybe taking our our Salumi program off-premise and mm-hmm. going USDA. There's, you know, And little doing a retail here. component, you mean, by going USDA? A wholesale. Wholesale. A wholesale, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exciting. How do you celebrate 25 years then at Obuco? What's what's in the what's the plan? I mean, that's our amazing anniversary for a restaurant. Well, um, on February 2nd, it was the anniversary of our lease signing, <laughs> and we did a few days of bringing back a bunch of the old kind of tapas recipes that were uh-huh. on the menu um, for our regulars, which was actually a fun little launch. And we'll be inviting chefs who have worked over the course of the last 25 years oh. to come in and cook be it Ignacio or Justin or Francis Melman, who, you know, did our 20th anniversary pig roast with us, an incredible dinner on the terrace mm-hmm. at Alimentary. Um, we're going to be uh, at the farm of Alain Passard and the um, winery at Bilcar Samon at the end of April with Tom Burns of T. Edwards, who's also mm-hmm. celebrating his 25th. And we're going to be doing Fun. two incredible lunches there. Fun road trip. Probably an event in Ibiza, and everything will culminate in a a major 25th anniversary pig roast uh, at the end of September. Oh, amazing. Last question is, and I read this somewhere online, you can dispute it or not, but was there really a ghost in your cellar? And did you really call the Ghostbusters? Because I, I've, this, there's a narrative online, I'm not even sure, I read it from some secondary source, but it was pretty colorful description of this incident it's absolutely true we didn't call in the ghostbusters but they were called in um and actually i think it was um harper's bazaar late 90s probably you know 95 96 you know within a few years of opening um they sent over these two gentlemen ghostbusters um, they sat down with us and had a conversation about how um, uncomfortable they were walking to the place, that they felt this incredible trepidation coming to the space. 
And then they went downstairs and disappeared for about 45 minutes and came back up and recounted this experience of how um, they heard a baby crying. Um, there was the ghost of this woman whose baby was killed and maybe she was murdered. And there was a whole host of different things going on um, ghost-wise. She was trapped in, in the, the cellar. cellar. Yeah. And so they said they cleared the energy and that everything was cool. And they came back upstairs and they told us this whole story. And we were just like, <laughs> you can imagine. We were like, all right. Um, so Alberto and I, after they left, walked down to the cellar. Um, and I should preface this by saying I always felt great going into that cellar in the past. Um we walked downstairs, and there was um, a photograph that my sister had bought me that was propped against the wall that we were going to hang. And um, we're standing there, and I said, you know, do you feel anything? You know, mm -hmm. Do you feel any different energy? And he's like, hmm, I don't know, I don't know. And then suddenly, crash, you know, the frame, like, fell to the floor, and the two of us jumped out of our skin. <laughs> And we went upstairs and, you know, we laughed about it afterwards. Yeah. It could have been anything, but it was just like, oh, my God. And from that day, it took me literally, you know, months, maybe years before I had the same feeling going down at night when I had to go get something in the yeah. office. I'd like turn up all the lights. Oh, <laughs> That's great. So, but it was probably a well-fed ghost. I'm sure. <laughs> Donna Leonard, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>